Hello, how you doing? My name's Matt Barr and you're listening to episode three of Looking Sideways. This is my podcast where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. If you've listened to the first two, thanks very much. I appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed them. If you did, please leave me a nice review on iTunes because that will really help me get more listeners, which is the name of the game in the old podcast world. In today's episode, the third episode of Looking Sideways, I speak to snowboarder and freeride world tour competitor Sasha Ham. Sasha is one of the UK's best freeriders and someone who's been at the top or around the top of European freeriding for about 20 years, which is about as long as I've known him. A lot of you will recognise his name and that's because in March last year Sasha's life changed forever when he took a slam which by rights should have killed him. He was competing in the Freeride World Tour event in Fieberbrunn in Austria when he essentially half backflipped off a 100 foot cliff and landed onto his left side onto rocks. And as you might imagine that did not end well and the list of injuries he sustained is a horrifying one. He tore his left ACL he broke 10 ribs, he broke his left elbow, he broke his left humerus, he broke his left collarbone, his left acromium, which I've got to be honest, I'm not too sure what that is, but it doesn't sound great. He broke his left shoulder blade, he collapsed his left lung, he ripped out nerves C8 and T1 from his spine and tore nerve C8 from his brachial plexus. And as you'll hear, that last detail is the one that's had the most life-changing and potentially permanently debilitating effects on Sasha. Even more remarkably, he remained conscious throughout the whole experience. Um, And today, the impact on his shoulder is still so devastating that it remains frozen a year later. He literally can't move it. While the torn nerves from his spine means he's got no movement in his left hand and it's unclear if he'll ever be able to use that again. In today's episode of the podcast, which is a two-part, part one of a two-part special with Sash, which was recorded almost a year to the day since the accident happened, we talk about how he's coping with those life-changing injuries he sustained that day. It might seem a little bit of a ghoulish thing to talk about, but the reason I wanted to speak to Sasha about this is because it's a side of action sports that we rarely see explored. You hear a lot about the the upsides, the good times, people landing new tricks, new video parts, but we very rarely hear the uh, the human cost of when it goes wrong, really. And in this conversation, Sasha is very very frank about the physical and mental costs of sustaining these injuries. He also talks about his relationship with danger and risk quite extensively, which I found pretty fascinating. And it sheds light on how a top action sports athlete like Sasha mentally rationalises the huge risks that are routinely required if you're going to have a career at that level. Later, we got into his early years in snowboarding, his progress through the UK scene. He taught me through the huge avalanche he was caught in back in 2008. And I was keen to explore whether these incidents have changed his views on freeriding and mountain safety in any way. Sasha, as I well know, having known him for so long, is opinionated, single-minded and intensely honest. And some of his opinions about the mechanics of risk and his attitude to backcountry safety are as uh, individual, shall we say, as ever, particularly in an era when avalanche and on mountain safety is more topical than ever. I'm sure some of you might find it fairly horrifying, some of what he's got to say about it, but as an insight into the mentality of a top athlete, it's peerless stuff, really. 
which is why I decided to split this podcast into two parts because we got right into it and we ended up talking for a couple of hours. So in part two, Sash discusses how he got back into snowboarding following a 10 year break, his side career as a budding Formula One driver, and he explains why and how he ended up competing on the Freeride World Tour in his mid 30s. It's wide ranging stuff, really. So for now, sit back, relax, and dig into part one of my interview with Sasha Ham on his accident and what happens when you need to deal with catastrophe. Enjoy. Sasha, um, so how are you? Uh, I'm living. You know, I'm alive. My parents are happy. Um, I'm not that happy at the moment, but um, this is a new challenge. So uh, uh, I've got this challenge, which I have to get through now. I think it'd be really good to start by talking about what actually happened with the accident, if that's all right. So do you remember it? Um, every bit. You do? So, yes, I was, uh, I, w- I was conscious all the way through. So um, yeah, Freeride World Tour. Um, it's the the event this year so the event from last year is pretty much coming up in a week or so so uh, 9th of march in austria um it there was um a delay so the comp was delayed by about a week because the snow conditions weren't right and um during that week of course you work out exactly where you want to go uh, down the mountain and i had three lines picked out which i wanted to do um, so th- where was it? Where was the event? Uh, Fieberbrunn. Okay. The Austrian Fieberbrunn. And how many events had there been during the season? Um, up to that point, so there's, or last year there was five events. Um, so it started off in Andorra, uh, then Chamonix, uh, then Fieberbrunn, then the next one would be Alaska, and then the final in Verbier. And you were doing well, right? Well, I won the first one. So I won Andorra. Um, Chamonix, terrible. Uh, ended up 10th um too too quick i should have just slowed it down a bit and then the infamous crash in uh in uh, fieberbrunn uh what was funny afterwards um so what you do is so there's three events and after three events there's a cut and from the 14 snowboarders um seven basically get it's like the premiership so seven get relegated they're no longer in the world tour the next year and um the other seven, they get to go to the next stop, which is Alaska. So even if I wouldn't have dropped in, I, I would have still been fourth. So I would have still qualified for Alaska. So I didn't even have to do the run in Austria. But um, of course, it was, um, um, it's always fun to ride. I, uh, you know, I, I love doing the, uh, the run. I love being in that free ride world tour family. So... Yeah, so anyway, standing at the top, three different options. Um, the skiers went first, and Drew, who actually won the last event, uh, or two, two events ago, uh, one of the skiers went where I wanted to go and literally just set off mini avalanches everywhere. So it just uncovered loads of rocks. So that run was out of the question. And then there was another run, which Felix and I were calling the, uh, the Hollywood jump, which everyone was jumping. And who's Felix? Sorry, Felix Wimmers. He's one of the skiers on the world tour. Okay. Um, so on the tour, you, you know, everyone it's kind of, and this is why I enjoy it as well. It's kind of like when we used to snowboard back in, uh, back in the nineties and, uh, 
early 2000s. You know, it's a big community. Everyone knows everyone. A lot of camaraderie. Loads. You know, this is not about, ooh, uh, you want to beat someone. You just want to do the best on the day. But at the end of it, before it, loads of piss taking, uh, loads of, um, yeah, loads of uh, uh, being together, partying and so on. So, um, so, and then there was one more option and that was to ride through a Kuwa. And the top bit, I didn't really, I didn't like it that much. I was just thinking, just get down the top bit as quick as possible. And then at the bottom, it would have been like a couple of little jumps to do, 360 to do. Tosh always wants me to do spins, so this time I was going to do one as well. Um, and yeah, so then I dropped in at the top, got to the Kulwa, and there was a little cliff to jump into the Kulwa. And I remember exactly like riding up to the cliff, um, and I could see little rocks in the landing. Um, and it was a split decision. It was like, what am I going to do? Should I ride around this, or should I just ollie a bit bigger and jump over the rocks and well, you, you went for option two didn't you yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> so i basically ollied um jumped over the rocks and when i landed it kind of i think i must have landed on a little rock because it caught me off guard so it gave me a little wobble um and put me out of balance it, again if i would have just crashed this accident would have, wouldn't have happened, but because I was determined to stay on top of my board, um, I rode along and then this is something I don't know, but I can see a little bit on the, on the, uh, on the video. Um, and Ed told me as well that there was, a, uh, that's, Ed, that's Ed Lee, obviously. Ed Lee, yeah. yeah. He, he told me that there was an avalanche hole very close to where I was. And I pretty much rode next to that and that caught me off guard again. And what I needed to do was get on my toe edge to carve through the Kulwa. I never thought that I would be able to basically fly out of the Kulwa, and that's pretty much what happened. So I was on my heel edge, all of a sudden getting on the, on the lip on the, on the right, and there's loads of rocks on there as well, and I just couldn't change onto my heel edge, couldn't fall back because there's literally a bit of snow on rocks. So I was just accelerating, accelerating, and then whew, off I went. I knew exactly where I was heading. It was over 100 foot uh, into rocks, so um, upside down as well. Never learned how to do a backflip properly, so I was just in not the, the ideal time to learn. Uh, well, it would have been. You know, <laughs> at least I would have landed on my feet and just broken legs or something. But um, so, yeah, what so did you what did you land on? Did you land on rocks? So the video footage doesn't show much, and my GoPro, I lost it. Um, so I've not been able to see the footage, but, um, and of course I can't remember because I was upside down and not really. Um, but from the footage, it looks like I land just next to the rocks. Uh, but again, because the snow was quite fluffy, there was probably like half a foot of snow and underneath that was rocks. So it pretty much, I think I landed on my back. So, cause there was loads of, um, uh, what do you call it? There's my um, my back protector had loads of damage as well, but I broke ten ribs, broke my uh, humerus, so uh, broke my collarbone, uh, broke my elbow. Uh, both the elbow and the humerus were sticking out, so blood was gushing out, and um, yeah, and ripped my ACL as well in the knee. So pretty much the whole left side. 
Uh, it was um, it was gone, and I was rolling down the hill, and then pretty much stopped. The reason why I was rolling was because the airbag opened because of the impact, and when I stopped, I was conscious. I could feel that there was something not right with my arm, so I could feel that I couldn't move my fingers anymore. Uh, I mean, I was in complete shock, so there was no real no real pain. But then, helicopter game, uh, they dropped me into another helicopter and then flew me off to Salzburg. In the helicopter, I got um, um, I got some sedatives to put me to keep me awake. But from then on, it was literally all blurry. I remember them pushing me into a CT scanner machine and turning an MRI machine. So they did loads of stuff in the in in the hospital. Um, what they told me afterwards is I lost loads of blood. Um, I had free uh, blood transfusion is it transfusion yeah. or something you call yeah. it so three of those um and they operated on the on the um uh, on the shoulder uh, on the um uh, uh, collarbone but they left the elbow because reading their doctor's report i was going uh, i was going so and i think they put me in a, into an induced coma and yeah i was in intensive care for two weeks and waking up there Absolutely agony. Do you remember how you felt when you woke up? Um, I no, I do remember actually because my mum, uh, my mum was in the hospital, so she um, she found out, um, flew to Austria straight away, and I think she was sitting right next to me. I could barely open my eyes. Um, yeah, one other thing, which um, so um, I had a thorax trauma, which is basically um, collapsed lung, um, so. I had to learn how to breathe again and basically expand that lung. So there's loads of blood in the lung and to try and get that out. And that was agony. Every day they put me on this machine where you basically have to breathe in and out really hard and do that for an hour. And uh, it's just like, when is this going to stop? Um, yeah. So you're lucky to be alive, really. I mean, that's fair to say, right? Mm, that's what everyone says. I, I don't think it's lucky. I think what's happened is very unlucky. But um, well, yeah, obviously you could look at it that way as well. It, it's happened. Oh yeah, no. W- one thing I forgot to say is, of course, the worst thing which happened. So all these broken bones, you know, bones heal. Um, ligaments, yes, it takes a bit longer. So with the ACL, it will take um, nine months to a year. Um, yesterday, I went swimming for the first time in ages and. I had I have physio every pretty much every day. Shouldn't have gone swimming. It's swollen like a water balloon today. Really? Um, no, but the worst thing which happened wasn't the broken bones, wasn't the ligaments. It was that I ripped out two nerves from my spine, um, and they're basically the nerves which operate all the muscles underneath the elbow. So I don't have any hand function in my left hand, and I'm left-handed, or I used to be. Right. So, um, uh, yeah. So what is the um, prognosis at this stage? Do they, have they given you a timeline for when you might get anywhere near back to normal or what, what do you have to do now? Well, in Austria, so they never really told me exactly what was up with the nerves. I mean, I did loads of research online. In the doctor's report I got back, um, they called me Dr. Google because whenever they told me something, I would check it up and then question it. Um, and... Yeah, I read up all the different scenarios which could happen. So you can, ha- you can have nerves which basic. I didn't know anything about nerves before this injury. 
You well, because our, our friend Nick Hamilton, he had a nerve issue, didn't he? If you With the shoulder. Yes, that's true. That, that was yeah. was that was like 15 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. That's the only time I can remember hearing about that. And that uh, was because he'd had a pack, wasn't it, that, that he'd carried for so long, snowboarding. Yes. But that had affected his range of movement, hadn't it? Yeah. So have you got a more severe version of that, basically? So, exa- so exactly. So what he's had is basically the first step, which is uh, a pinched nerve. And um, over time that gets better. It just means that a nerve is pinched, it's aggravated, it's not happy. The next step would be that you re- a nerve is kind of like a, a cable. Imagine the plastic on the outside and then you've got the metal on the inside. So the next step which could happen is that the metal on the inside tears um, and that's a bit more severe, but it heals. Um, the next one, step three, would be that the nerve rips, so the plastic and the metal inside rips, and then you need an operation to... C- to put those together and as soon as you put those together the bit not to not next to your spine but the other bit of nerve is completely empty so the metal is no longer inside and then it starts growing a millimeter a day to get back to the uh, the muscle so is it the hand muscle or wherever and that's, that's what, where you are no that would have been great oh, uh, right. so i've had the worst one which is when it rips out of the spine so that's basically right at the end um, and in Austria, they said, that's no, it. Nothing that they can do? No, that's it. So they you said know. to you, you wouldn't get the range of movement back in, no. your, in your hand No, they arm. said it's pretty much over. Um, what they said is wait three months, you know, and then see what comes back. But if you've ripped out of the nerves, but what I did is I had a look online and I found a doctor here in the UK who's been practicing, and he's the only one who does this, but he's been practicing on rodents is a professor and what he does is basically open up the spine and re-implant the nerves back into the spine and um, there was different options to do I mean this was the one where I'd get the most back if it works and I just flew over straight away and I had it done literally like a week later so that was done in April and what they say is a nerve grows a millimeter a day so from the spine to get to my um, forearm um, muscles is about 70 centimeters, 700 days. So in 700 days, potentially, I would be able to get certain movement back, which is opening the fingers and closing the fingers. And then to get to the actual hand where your intrinsic muscles are, probably 90 days, so another 200 days, and then potentially I'll get that back. But this is all hypothetical. Yes. You have to wait and see. So what about the rest of the injuries? Because before we started recording, you were briefly explaining the, the regime, really, that you're under at the minute. So could you talk me through that a little bit? Yeah, so I've... Um, I mean, the one thing which I'm trying to do now, because I've had this operation, so I'm doing everything to try and get, keep these... Or, yeah, yeah, to be able to get some function back in the hand. So if I wouldn't do anything... Um, the muscle atrophies straight away. Um, but um, what I'm having to do is um, every day for one hour, I electrocute myself. So uh, so what, what, does, what does that look like? Sorry, sorry for laughing, but it's obviously quite it's, a... It's, um, it's similar to... A, so there's different machines. So there's a tense machine, uh, which is something I've also got. That's something for the knee, which I use. Um, but this one is pretty much like having a, a subwoofer and then you connect it to 
um, the arm and you basically try and put electric pulses through it um, so that your muscles start working. Because the worst thing is that the nerves are growing back, hopefully, and they have to go through the plexus. So it's like, it's, where did you, which tube did you come on today? Uh, I walked from London Bridge. Oh, okay, okay. So, but it's imagine, imagine getting into London Bridge yeah. and me telling you to go to Richmond, but not giving you a map and you're not allowed to look at a map and you have to set off and find it. And that's basically what the nerves have to do. So it's literally like going through a, a maze and finding the end point. And so there's a big question mark if it'll even work its way in the right way. Okay. You know, you've got to be positive. But what I'm having to do is so keep the muscles alive because if a muscle doesn't work for about a year, it doesn't remember the electric, like the, the current. Or, so even if the nerves come back. The pathways, back, if you yeah, like. Yeah. You, even if the nerve comes back, the muscle will go, what's this? And not actually function. So what I'm doing is an hour a day, electrocute myself uh, to try and keep that muscle alive somehow so that when the nerve or yeah, when the nerve arrives, at least it'll be like, oh, okay. And then I can start working the, in the arm again. That sounds painful. It is. It's, it's agony. Right. Um, and how about, the, how about the rest of it? How about the knee and the, and so, the elbow? So that's one thing I do then. So if, if we stick with the nerves, the other thing I do is um, I've got two hour sessions. Uh, so one, t uh, sorry, two one hour sessions, laser therapy. So again, this is just me doing some research online, but I found that if you laser the nerves, um, it splits the um, the cells and it just and some more oxygen goes to the area. So it's supposed to accelerate the nerve growth. Take loads of supplements, which are supposed to increase nerve growth as well. Acupuncture, which I've got today. Um, so that's all, and then hand therapy, which is basically because the hand and the fingers aren't moving. So what would happen if I wouldn't move them after a couple of months, they would, all the joints would seize up and then it would literally be like, a, yeah, it'd literally be like a, it would stay that way. So you wouldn't be able to move the fingers anymore. So I have to move the fingers in all the different range of motions. Absolutely painful. It's killing me every time I have to do it, but has to be done. So that's pretty much all I do in relation to the nerves. Um, then the knee, um, I had that operated in September and that's a normal one. So if it would just, just having the ACL is already a big. It's coming to something when an ACL injury feels like straightforward. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It, it isn't really because you're having to learn in how the to context. walk again, but com with all the other things it's, um, but it's, yeah, I mean, there you're building up the muscles, especially the quads. Um, and then learning how to balance again. And it's a nine month process, really a, a year process because you've got to, got to get the confidence back to believe in your leg and just put the weight on it. So, but that's, that went really well actually until, um, December and end of December, I had my sixth operation, uh, to get all the metal work removed out of the elbow and the humerus and collarbone because the doctor in Austria thought I ripped out all nerves so that I had a flail arm, so an arm which wasn't working at all. So the screws he put in there were way too long and they were rubbing on the 
on the muscles and, and the deltoids especially. So all this had to be removed, had that done in December. Um, and since then, we've been working on trying to get the shoulder moving again. It's frozen. And yeah, so that's another thing. I mean, that's absolute painful every time I, uh, I do physio on there, but yeah. So explain what that means, frozen. Um, so what happens, so it, I've heard somewhere that happens to 5% of the population that their shoulder freezes. Um, I bet Nick had it as well, actually. Okay. Um, so um, what happens is that, so in the shoulder there's a capsule, uh, which is um, under the bone, uh, under the muscles, uh, around the ligaments, and there's a capsule around the shoulder joint. And what can happen is that loads of scar tissue builds around that, and that basically means that you cannot move your arm. Like you can't, um, what, what can you call it? You can't lift your arm to the top, um, so you wouldn't be able to touch your face with your hand. Um, you can't twist your hand behind your back um, so it's literally completely frozen and it's usually a two-year process um, if you don't do anything the likelihood that you'll get full range of motion back is minimal but um, yeah I mean there's there's different philosophies and the physios I've got they push me quite hard but I can only take so much pain <laughs> so I'm screaming and swearing in the in the place and they're not too happy with that so uh, I'm going to try something else. I found a doctor in Estonia who says he can heal these frozen shoulders. Uh, so I think I'm going to do that. But, um, and what was the treatment that you were just describing from your current physio? So um, there's, there's something called manipulation, MUA, manipulation under anesthetic. And what they do is they give you a full, full anesthetic. So you're basically uh, passed out. And then they move that arm or rip it into certain places. But by doing that, reading online, there's a big chance of breaking the arm or breaking the shoulder blade because there's so many, so big forces involved. And of course, because the patient's passed out, he doesn't notice it. So what my physio has been doing is been doing the manipulation without anesthetic. And you know, the pain, my, my body's like tense, although I don't barely have any muscles up there because I, I can't really move it. The muscles are tensing to stop it because the pain is just unbearable. So he told me on Friday that over the weekend I have to, he's giving me a choice but, and I should decide over the weekend. And um, it's, um, how can I explain this? It's basically warming the, warming the shoulder up and then, um, doing a high velocity thrust. So moving the arm to the top and then just ripping it down in one quick motion. And yeah, now I've decided and no chance of not doing it. I can, much. I can understand why you might make that decision. <laughs> that's what everyone else said as well. Actually, yeah. So. Wow. So that's quite a story. Um, so how are you physically is one thing. Um, mentally, how are you handling that? Mentally is, I mean, the one thing is because I've got so much to do, I'm literally just, you know, I'm focused on getting better. I don't know if it'll happen, but for these two, two and a half years, all I'm doing is putting all my energy into this to try and back, get back to normal. The, 
normal but to be able to do things i wanted to do i mean the, the two hobbies which i had was snowboarding which i'll definitely be able to do I, I don't know at what level my balance at the moment is completely out um, and the other one was climbing i i really enjoyed climbing and let's see if that's something i can get back to um without the left hand it'll be tough but um let's have a look i mean that's what i'm working towards i'll be able to do the things which i enjoyed at the moment no hobbies so it's my, well my hobbies are physio now so that's where all my energy is going into thankfully i do have my work and that kind of like puts me you know it's something to focus on it's something to um, yes it's not physical it's more mental but um it's still fun i still enjoy it so yeah, i've got this now have you um obviously you've been going through this procedure for the physical rehab have you done anything for mental rehab like are you, do you need to have like you know i don't know like counseling or or therapy or anything just because it's obviously such a such a huge thing that's happened to you in I mean, in austria they had a a counselor who kept on coming to my bed <coughs> uh and telling me um yeah but no i can't deal with that no not really your style is it no you know this is something which i just of course everyone's got problems everyone's got issues but um I just deal with them the way I deal with them. So I don't need someone else to to try and get it out of me. So. Yeah. And what's, can you name what the most difficult thing has been about this whole thing? Um, you know, I was quite quick to accept it. It's not something I want. There's always a question. I, I do believe in karma. So, you know, what have I done uh, wrong? Am I going to do something really bad? Maybe because I don't think I've been that bad before, but maybe I will be. I, I don't know. But um, we've certainly what, taken a lot of risks. I don't think so. That's what everyone says, but especially even in the in the tour, you know, this was this. No one expected that this could happen because when I look at runs, doesn't matter where I go, um, I always look at you know what could go wrong. You know, if I fall, and then I pick the runs in such a way that if I do fall, that, you know, it's not going to be bad. Uh, that I would fly out of the core. I thought if I'd fall, I would be rag rolling down the core and spit me out at the bottom. I would never have thought that I would literally launch out of it and then land 100 foot further down. So Yeah, I mean, I guess there is that whole thing about how athletes rationalize the risks that they take because obviously for you to drop into that line which to most people i mean you know for me for example i would never ride that line you know and for you to do that clearly you need to justify it in your head as like yeah i can do that and and the risks are acceptable for me and you know you're never going to factor in something like that but clearly if you fly into a cool war at 30 40 miles an hour catching edge there's a possibility that something could go really badly wrong i guess that's what I mean when I say there are risks involved. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah, it's, it is just an accident though, isn't it? Really? I mean, what can you... Um, I had, I had a dinner with one of the judges, uh, Lolo, who was there. He cooked some artichokes. Uh, very nice. nice. Um, seeing cooking with one hand is quite tough now. So it, it's cool. And it was also interesting to hear his thoughts. And, you know, for me, I, I did think, you know, there's... I should have thought this over a bit better, but from his side, he just said, look, completely free accident. There's not much, 
you know, no one expected it. No. No one would have thought that that's even possible. Well, it's like there was the surfer that died at Pipeline, six foot Pipeline, you know, guy that charges Chopu, Tahiti, you know, sometimes it is that simple. It's an accident, isn't it? You know, you can make all the calculations in the world, but sometimes it just happens. it's, It's that simple, really. You've seen the footage then because they, they obviously considered that to be quite sensitive, didn't they? Because they immediately took it down from the online uh, broadcast, didn't they? Um, you can still find it online. Oh, really? So, um, so, yes, so I'll they, put a link in? Uh, if you want to. <laughs> so they've, uh, well, you can't see much. I mean, they, they have taken out um, a lot, but you can see the, the actual crash. Um, yeah, I've watched it. I, don't, I saw it in the hospital, actually, when I was lying there. Um, it's quite. I saw it. It's, it's just quite difficult to see what happens. I thought. Yeah. You know, you happens you can, so quick. You as can well. kind of you can kind of see that you catch some kind of edge or that you lose your balance and then your momentum, like you were explaining earlier, just does take you on a traje- trajectory that you really didn't want to be on, didn't exactly. it? Exactly. Knowing you, I didn't expect you to be like massively mentally affected. But it's interesting to hear you talk about it. Mm. But it'd be really interesting to. Go back to the beginning if you're into it, like your snowboarding career. Because, I mean, we've known each other a long time now. Back to the good times. Well, your career is in two halves, isn't it? You've got the the early, I guess, UK scene days, 90s, early 2000s. And then you've got the, the wilderness years with the, the racing car career. And then you've got the free ride world tour years. So that's fair to say, isn't it? But firstly, I guess I wouldn't mind you sat in an argument once and for all. Are you Austrian or are you British? I was born in Austria, um, but um, not but. But when I was um, four or five years old, my parents moved over the, to the UK and I've lived here ever since. So, so yeah. do you consider yourself British? More than Austrian, yes. Because uh, I remember when we met you, I think people did refer to you as Austrian. I was reading an interview that Chris Brand did with you. And, oh, they still, they still yeah, do. Yeah, in, in White Lines I, in like 98, and he, he called you Austrian. When, when I go up to um, uh, Sheffield to meet Reese, Right, uh, Reese Crabtree. Reese Crabtree, yeah. Um, and Paul Moore, you know, I was always uh, called, or their parents would call me the foreign lad. <laughs> the foreign lad. <laughs> so, the North for you. But... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, London is an international city. Yeah. Um, this is where I grew up. Um, I always think that where you spend your teenage years, that kind of makes you who you are. Yeah. And those who have spent in the UK. Um, I did go back to Austria to study. Um, this was actually when I was doing seasons in uh, Lazark. So a couple of months I would be in Vienna studying. Um, but because my parents put me into a German school here in London, uh, my accent is German and not Austrian. And Austrians don't like Germans, probably more. They, they like Germans less than English like Germans. So um, when I was in Austria, I was always taking a piss out of by everyone. You know, oh, what's this German doing at this party? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. How did you get into snowboarding? Was it something that was in the family? Did you start as a skier? Um, so my mum's from North Italy. and um, Was your mum some kind of athlete as well? Do I remember hearing? She was a... Um, I mean, this goes back when she was a teenager and before, but she was in the um, Italian national team for diving, so jumping. I like, thought I remembered something Tom, about that. Tom, Tom Daly, so stuff like that, okay. where, where she does like backflips and front flips and stuff into water. Um, yeah, so um, 
Yeah, so my mum and my dad, to get rid of my sister and me, they would send us to uh, my aunt's place in, uh, in Italy, and that was over Christmas, and that's where I, would, I learned how to ski. I mean, this was from four years onwards. So um, when I was 13, I saw a Transworld Snowboard ad uh, magazine, and there was a, sorry, a Transworld Skateboard magazine, and there was an advert with a snowboard on it. And from then on, I was like, you know, I, I want the snowboard, don't want to ski anymore. And my mum wouldn't get me a snowboard, but my aunt did. Um, and from then it started. So, but I mean, those were the days when this was 1990s. So there was some lifts where they wouldn't even let you on. Um, but community wise, this is when I wasn't in the British scene yet. Um, I was just riding like that one week or the two weeks a year. So one over Christmas, one over Easter uh, in Italy at my aunt's place. But when you're on a mountain, it didn't matter who you met, but if you met a snowboarder, didn't matter if he had hard boots, soft boots, if he was 40, 50, 20, 14, um, you, would, you would instantly like uh, say hello, instantly go riding together. And uh, it was such a cool, you know, you were, yeah, it's such a cool gang as such because um, yeah, it just bonded people. So. And how did you get introduced to the UK scene? Did you ride dry slope? Um, yeah, so um, when I was 16, um, I started wanting to go snowboarding a lot more than just those two weeks a year. And um, I looked around and um, that's when I saw, I think in, uh, in WH Smith, I saw... Uh, um, snowboard uk magazine and they had dry slope on there and i looked around and i found a dry slope which was still about an hour's drive away or well i had to take the tube actually so it was two hours to get there by tube uh no an hour and a bit to get there by tube then you had to walk over across the whole field so it took about two hours to get Is that to Hillingdon? Dry slope. exactly yeah, yeah. okay because <laughs> that's like right up in the north west wasn't it yeah and i was living uh, in richmond so um but i would go there every sunday amazing scene um rob needham was basically the one who, who started at schmitty joe rackley duncan carr um well will, will hughes was there yeah there was literally you know it's made up of uh, loads of guys who ended up being in the scene so um they built jumps you would jump off the jumps um schmitty then um asked me if I wanted to join him to go up to um, Scotland because uh, there was a Scottish championship uh, and uh, we literally drove from London all the way up to Scotland. Uh, yeah, it, it was a great, you know, it was a great time. And yeah, it was a tight community, wasn't it? Yeah. It, well, and the funny thing was that um, a lot of people, they didn't live close. You know, you didn't live, you weren't neighbours, you weren't from the same town. You know, some of them were up in Scotland, some of them were in Sheffield, uh, Doncaster, where, uh, wherever. But when you got together, you know, it was like a real community, it was a real family. So. But you didn't seem to have much trouble making the transition from, from dry slope to free riding, really. Because I, I remember you, you were all charging, I mean, straight away. Was that because you grew up skiing from such a young age? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, snowboarding, I could snowboard before I went to dry slope. And for me, it was always snow was what I enjoyed. Not so much. Yeah, no, definitely hitting jumps. So even looking at the videos, I would be 
looking at the um, jumping part and not the free riding part. But actually riding, I always loved to go off piste, find different terrain, ride the whole mountain. It was not just about going to the park. And I think that transferred over when we did our first season. And of course, we're a group. We're all we were all competitive, you know. Um, when someone goes off a jump, the next person would want to do better, would want to do a spin as well. So, of course, you cheer each other on. Um, and that kind of pushed all of us. So, um, And then you started shooting with Nick Hamilton, right? Yeah, so Nick, was, um, Nick came out that season and he was literally starting out as a photographer for White Lines. So he, he was, was young. I mean, he was like 18, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So for him, it was... I mean, we're all roughly the same age, but for him, it was like, for us, it was the start. So we, we all had sponsors to get free kit. Um, but, um, and for him, it was like starting out with, with the photographer. So he came out to, um, to Voreaz and that's how we started working together. Um, and uh, taking pictures, jumping off cliffs over uh, kickers, which we built and, yeah, and a lot of those pictures ended up in, in White Lines. I mean, that's around the time I became involved with White Lines and you were definitely um, one of the people that we featured a lot and you did become a mainstay of the scene, really. You know, you had covers, you had interviews, you you did trips for us, you did a Canada trip, didn't you, with, with Chris Moran and Spence and Spencer Claridge. Do you that, have any... That, that was a fun trip. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember it. I remember it well. Crash cars. Uh, yeah, biggest biggest car I've crashed, yes. Yeah, <laughs> quite an illustrious list as well. <laughs> um, do you have any favourite memories of that of that time? If you take that kind of like, you know, I guess it was like an eight-year period really, wasn't it? I mean, there's... Yeah, I mean, um, no, actually not an eight-year period, five years. So less. It was, it was five, for me it was five years. So one season in uh, Avoriaz, then the next three seasons was in um, uh, Les Arcs. Uh, Madame, uh, I can't remember, Madame Muriel. Oh, you all had that flat in Borg-Samaris, In Borg-Samaris, yeah. yes. And then the last season was in Maribor with um, Nick, Ed and Spencer. Spencer. Yeah. Oh, right, that was your last one. I didn't realise that. That was the okay. last one, yeah. But uh, what, what do you remember from those years? From the riding perspective, uh, one thing I definitely remember is, um, so with avalanches, you know, it was all we'd have heard of them but you know we weren't really involved not everyone was wearing avalanche transceivers at that time definitely not riding with backpacks uh, with shovels so it was literally just and you know we got by but um then one day steve bailey um he was definitely the best dry slope rider i've ever seen um but he um he got taken down by an avalanche and that was a big one, so it went over. He ended up going down, probably at half a mile or something over a road. Were you um, in the group that day? N- no, I was in a different group, but I rode pretty much uh, down the same run as well before him. So that was probably two hours before, and then they rode that run as well, and literally uh, it, it, it happened. And he um, he went down, broke his uh, ankle. Yeah, uh, but his head stuck out to the snow so he was he was he was alive so um yeah and then it was his birthday it got beat up by the bouncers at one of the clubs so they broke his ankle again oh god so i remember that, that yeah. yeah um but his first i can't remember it was that year or maybe it might have been 
the next no it must have been that year later on in the season so we went riding together and there was uh, one of the runs called or which we called the valley of the kings um and that's like the top of art 2000 isn't it yes get exactly. that chair and then there's a little hike in there yeah. um, exactly yeah so we went there and literally it was a powder field with not a single track in and um it was just us two and it was pretty much his first day back on powder since um the the accident and yeah just seeing a smile on the face again i mean it, that was yeah that was one of the days i definitely remember so that's one um one for the memory banks i mean your interview in white lines was was pretty legendary the yellow issue with the the cover and you you know the the shot of you straight lining Sasha's couloir in, in Lazark. Chris Moran wrote a piece in like about five years after that in which he said like Sasha Ham dragged British free riding forward. Did it, did you think that was the case at the time or were you just literally going snowboarding? I've always just been going snowboarding so uh, maybe they're a bit selfish but it was um, about enjoying yourself. Um, Yes, you were in the community. Of course, you'd all push each other. Um, but um, And you always find the next fix. You know, you always try and push it a little bit further, a little bit harder. Thinking about, you know, thinking about it now, did we take risks? Of course we did. But I do think that we always, you know, looked at... Yeah, I mean, I did set off a number of avalanches, but for me, it was always, even if an avalanche goes, you've probably got five, six seconds where you can do something about it. Well, I remember having a conversation with you in Maribel in the year 2000, and I remember being shocked, to be honest, at how blasé you seemed about it because you we, we used to give you shit for it really oh you gave me yeah. you know and okay. and you and you would be like you would say that you would say like well i think you know i've got enough time to to outrun it so i'm not i'm not too bothered and you know it was like quite a horrifying thing to hear really you yeah. know um do you obviously i'm sure we'll get to this but you have been avalanched very seriously since then how how do you what do you think of that now um to be honest, I'm still of the same opinion. I think that um, you have to look at the train, and this comes with experience. So with experience, you know what could go, what can't go. In in a way, the Freeride World Tour is the same. You've got young guns, which are like 20, 22, and then you've got goes all the way to old guys who are close to 40 or even around 40. Um, and they've, of course, got way more experience. So when you look at a face, um, you kind of you know, even a little bit of change of aspect will change the snow conditions already. And with, I don't know, is it with feeling or with just intuition, you kind of work out what's more dangerous and not. But when you're standing on top of the run, um, before I drop in anywhere, I would work out if something goes. And every time I drop in, I think it, this could be where literally it, it starts breaking off. So if, if something goes, where do you go? And if you've got that in your head and something does go and you keep momentum, the worst thing, I, I would say the worst thing in any extreme sport is to start backing off or getting scared. But to keep momentum and to keep going and with that, you can usually, you've got these five seconds where you can decide where you want to go. And if you decide correctly, then, you know, you're, you're going to be in a safe spot. There's, 
There's a big... You know what I'm going to ask you now, though. No, there's a big um, video from Xavier de la Rue years and years ago when he's riding down and then it's literally the whole face, like, everywhere breaks off. Yeah, I remember it. And, I can't remember the film. I'll put a link to it. And he box. straight lines it, but he straight lines it into the wrong direction. So if he would have gone the other way, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been in it, but he ended up going with it. And of course, it was massive. But doesn't that... Doesn't that illustrate how difficult it is to I mean he's one of the best free riders in the world you know if he if he can't make that correct decision then doesn't that just go to show that actually there is no control in a situation like that no but there is if you keep a clear head if you get it right okay so how did how do you I mean we might as well talk about this now then so how did you how do you explain the avalanche that you were caught in then given all this level of calculation that you're talking about um yeah, okay. So that was yeah, a bad one. That was, um, well, it wasn't, yeah, it was avalanche danger. I mean, this is, you know, this is, uh, uh, th this was during the time, um, 2008, uh, 2008. So since 2000, I was literally riding sometimes a week, sometimes two days a year. So I was a proper punter. Uh, a punter who still wanted to ride the same way he used to when he was doing seasons. So, um, I would go out um, with my friend uh, Robert from Italy and usually go to his place in Italy and then we would drive to different resorts in Austria. Um, Zölden, amazing. Ischgl, uh, really good as well. Uh, Hochfugen was another one. Um, so anywhere, we, we would drive anywhere to, um, to find the powder. Uh, and Austrian resorts are not like the French ones, so um, you can still find powder literally a week after it snowed. So. Um, so we were in Hochfugen. Um, it was my last day over the weekend. So I was only there for the weekend. So we were riding powder all day, getting really tired. It was dangerous. We were setting off avalanches. Um, I've still got head cam footage riding, hee hee hee, mini avalanche and just riding away. Um, so a bit blase maybe. Yeah. Um, but then we saw this one face and it was literally getting, yeah, so it was literally um, hiking to the top of a ridge and then dropping into the back, into the complete no, no man's land. And then you would end up all the way down in the valley and there was a like a, a, a path which would lead you all the way back to the resort. So and the path went on for about three kilometers or something. So all the way back to the resort and back in. So what we decided was end of the day, last run of the day, hike to the top of there and then literally ride down. Um, amazing run to finish the day. Both of us were absolutely knackered already. So we started hiking along the ridge and it was, I think it was about three o'clock or something, half three or something when we started hiking. Hiking along and um, about an hour in um, or 45 minutes in, my mate just said, look, I can't do this anymore. He couldn't even, you know, he couldn't walk properly anymore. He says, I'm, I'm too tired. I can't do this. I'm, I'm going. And silly Sasha decided, you know, last day of the season, I'm, I'm getting to that. You know, when you see a, a peak, you're going to get to it. So um, I ended up carrying on on my own. And so he turned around, went back to the resort, and I ended up hiking up to the top. I got to the top at five to five. And at five o'clock, it literally, from one, from one minute to the next, it just goes dark. So 
usually when I get to the top of the peak after a long hike, you want 15, 20 minutes to relax, you know, get your muscles back because hiking in itself is quite strenuous as well. Eat some energy tablets, you know, get, get yourself going and then you ride. But I got up there and there was none of that. I had to get down and I couldn't go back the way I went because it's literally rock climbing. So the only way I could go was ride down that, that run. So did you, did you feel like there was avalanche danger? There was. So you thought, oh shit, this is dangerous. Well, so I knew it was avalanche that day because it was setting off everywhere. So, um, but I was riding down and you can hear my head cam footage as well. I'm going, ah, oh, I'm so tired because so I could, couldn't really feel my legs. And then I rode down, got, there was only, there was probably only about 300 yards left to get to the bottom. And it was literally a shoot through the trees uh, and then it opened up into a powder field and then it ended up going down to the valley and there's a little stream and, uh, and the path. And I stopped before the, um, that cool white into the trees and just thought, you know, this looks dangerous, but what I'm going to do is, you know, one slash into the cool white, just straight line it out of there and then, you know, then it's fine. So I drop in, um, do my turn but it's not powder, but it's like crusty. It's a crusty. So I lose my heel edge, land on my ass, and that sets off the avalanche. And I'm literally a passenger. So uh, th this is the thing. If you don't fall over, you've got a chance. If you've, once you've fallen over, that's it. You know. And I was literally a passenger sitting on top of it, riding through that cool wild trees, just going, and then all of a sudden, and, uh, uh, rolling, boom, 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 ended up going off a 30-foot cliff, landed headfirst, um, snowboard like a back scratcher. Um, I had a cramp in my back, cramp in my leg, and literally snow on top of me. <laughs> ended up being like four, four and a half foot, five foot under. Um, but luckily, I had a massive air pocket uh, to the right side of me. Um, and had an avalanche transceiver, but... Um, no one knew where, well, Robert knew where I was, but... Um, I mean, that's as bad as it gets, really, in terms of situations in the mountains, like for an avalanche, you know, you're on your own, it's dark, you're five feet under. Um, yeah, I'll put a link to the footage because you did a Ski Sunday piece on this, didn't you? Uh, you they've got your audio, haven't they? Of like you... Oh, yeah, yeah, they did. You, yeah, you yeah. being underneath the snow and not easy to listen to i don't think because no. there's this genuine panic in yeah. your voice no there was like i i knew well i thought that was it you know when i was under doosh, i thought that was it because i knew straight away robert he knew where i was riding but you know the run's massive he wouldn't know i've always heard that you've got 15 minutes under an avalanche after that your survival rate is less than 15 percent so so what happened? Yeah, I was really lucky that I had this massive air pocket. So air wasn't the problem. Um, and f the first thing I do remember is trying to slow down my breathing because it was it's probably like when you're in a, uh, when you get barreled or something and then you come out and, you know, yeah. So it's just slowing down the breathing. And then I had a cut in the lips, um, blood gushing from the lip. Um, but... What, what to do, what to do. Um, luckily, 
the air pocket was to my right, so I couldn't move my head, couldn't move my left hand at all, uh, at all. Um, but my right hand I could move. So I could get to my pocket, and uh, in the right pocket was my phone. And it was one of those old phones, so not the iPhones, but the old phones with the button. So literally I'd just click the call button. Oh, like uh, a Nokia with the green. Wow, go on, yeah. Nokia. Uh, Samsung, actually. Okay, but one of the old school. Yeah, one of the old ones, yeah. yeah. So I click the button, call, um, and the number was Robert, so the person I because we were calling each other before. So, uh, and I just told him, Robert, I'm under an avalanche, I can't breathe, get help. And his response was, yeah, 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 where are you? Come on, get it. And, but then he could, you know, then he could hear that I was... He could know. hear the panic. Yes. So he literally turned around, got help, um, and there was a pista very close to him, and then... Um, they basically got the helicopters and there was two helicopters flying around um, but they wouldn't take him in the helicopter so they showed him a map and told them right whereabouts whereabouts is he so if you think about the resort of Chamonix imagine I'm buried in Brevont and he showed him a place in Latour so are you serious? yes yeah, so literally they were flying around in completely the wrong area it's like 12k miles away yeah so, so miles away so i was literally under and then time went past and then i'm like calling robert again and going what the fuck's going on you know and he's like yeah yeah they're coming they're coming um and then uh yeah and then i got a call so all of a sudden my phone rang i answered it and it was the people in the helicopter going right whereabouts are you what can you see well, you know, under here, I can't see anything. It's black. But, um, and then I kind of described exactly where I was. So they said, okay, we're going to fly to where we think you are. And once you start hearing the blades, uh, once you hear the uh, chopper, tell us if it gets louder, quieter. Because there was avalanches everywhere. So then all of a sudden they said, okay. And it was pitch black by that time as well. So they were flying around with these big, big lights. And then they came over... I could hear it's like yeah louder 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 quieter and then they were like okay we think we know under which avalanche you are we're now going to go and get the people to dig you out um, and then probably about a minute two minutes after that my phone went dead so battery was gone and then it then was the hardest time for me because then up to that point I was literally doing something so actively trying to get out of this mess but after that I was literally just lying there waiting and that's when it got hard so uh, so how, what did you leave messages for people exactly, i mean I did you do that stuff because obviously you're there thinking well i'm gonna die yeah know? no i left messages for the family so uh, we all listened to it together everyone cried so, wow that uh, must have been a very emotional so, moment yeah so um but then yeah, but then it still took ages because I heard the chopper again. Uh, what I found out later is that there was someone on a rope underneath it who was um, uh, tied to the rope underneath it with an avalanche transceiver. And he basically flew over the avalanche and then they pinpointed exactly where I was. Um, and um, then they flew back and then they got the people up to actually dig me out. And I remember them digging and they started digging around my head, of course, to uh, try and get air, uh, to get me uh, air. But I still had the cramp. So I was like, fuck, <laughs> just dig around my leg, leg, leg. So then they were doing the leg 
And then all they wanted me to do was sit and all I wanted to do was stand and see if I could still, you know, move if I, cause you know, being stuck in there for, what was it? Two hours. Wow. That's uh, crazy. So, um, yeah. So, but one of the doctors there, one thing he did was literally gave me a big hug when he arrived and that's what I needed. Definitely. I right. needed some, some warmth. So, okay. Uh, cause it made the papers, didn't it? And you got a lot of, press off that did you get shit for that so for the, the risks that you took um the um robert got loads of shit did from, he yeah so the police was there um but, why did he get in trouble well they were probably just what are you two doing you know and then he was going well we're free riding yeah this is this, uh, this stuff can happen well he turned back though i mean he made a good decision uh, yeah well no he didn't you should you have to stay with your man you can't leave your man well you should have both turned back no never turn back well, you know what I mean, though. The, uh, you know, the, I'm the, sorry, I've only got three days snow. I've got to use them more. You know, I the, uh, the, 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 I would say the, uh, the, the PC version would be that you should have both turned back. Turn back. No, that's very true. Once he turns back, I should have gone, okay, I'm coming yeah. with you. Yes, very true. Um, yes, you're right. I mean, I was the first one in Austria who saved himself with a mobile from an avalanche. So that's why the uh, Austrian news came. Um, they started filming to the hospital. So I was lucky, so I didn't break anything. I just had a, um, a cut in the lip, so I got two, three stitches in the lip. Uh, a bit of hyperthermia, not much because I had a down jacket on. Um, my clothes were absolutely drenched. It's literally like jumping into a pool. And the reason is because it's all the snow around you. It's literally, you, you can't move, but it's all it all starts melting around you. Because of your so, body heat. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So when I got my clothes back, absolutely drenched. And then, um, yeah, and then the, uh, the news came, the Austrian news. So they filmed a piece and it came on the seven o'clock news. Uh, my grandma lives in Vienna. She watched the news. Um, it was like, oh my God, you know, he's on there. What does she do? Call my parents in the UK. Um, then the next day I call my parents. So I switch on my phone, uh, still working, good old Samsung, uh, switch on my phone, call my parents like, um, and next day my whole body was frozen so I couldn't you know all the joints were literally I couldn't move so I call up and say any chance you can pick me up from the airport and my dad answers and goes you idiot <laughs> so they yeah so they found out what happened so um in in the in the Austrian news they asked me you know is there anything I would change and um yes there's two things which I think um, uh, is very important when you go free riding. One is don't go on your own. So it's kind of like scuba diving because you have to be with something, uh, someone if anything happens. And number two, which, I mean, I have started riding on my own again. Um, but um, so I've kind of stopped. Yeah. Uh, but number two, which I think is even more important, is don't go riding when you're tired because then you're not the same, you know, you, you, it's not, you don't have that reaction, you don't have the things. So. But those two things I would definitely say are, are two very important things. These airbags, I don't really believe in them that much. Um, I mean, I've, I've looked at some of the research. Yes, if it's a massive avalanche, but I've had friends die with last year. Last year was a bad year, so not 
my crash, but Min, one of the good friends from the qualifier tour, died in a massive avalanche. Who, who was that, sorry? Min Becker. He was one of the guys in... He was... So it was... Um, he was one of the guys who would party. So he was a party animal uh, at night, and we would always party. And, um, and he... But free riding, he was the only one who would wear that... You know that cock strap? Which no. you've got with the... So you've got the airbag and you're supposed to wear that strap between your legs right to keep the airbag on you if it opens okay he's the only one i know who's always worn it right no one else i know wears that he does in the avalanche no chance it just ripped everything from his body i know but i just think that all these precautions whether it's like turning back like not riding when you're tired wearing an airbag they're about mitigating risk aren't they you know it, it comes down to that thing we talked about earlier uh, that they are, their attempts to try and mitigate the risk involved in what is an inherently very risky pursuit. Yes, but the so turning back, knowing when to make a decision. Yes, airbag helmets do the opposite to me, because what that means is that you end up taking more risks than what you would if you didn't have it. If you've do you ride with a helmet now? Occasionally. If you ride without one, how do you feel now? Would you take the same I risk? Feel, I feel like I'm stupid. Well, it's not stupid, but you wouldn't take the same risk. It's, it's strange, though, but I don't... I mean, on paper, there's no reason not to wear a helmet. You know, like, what, what harm does it do? Like, you should wear a helmet, really. But I, but I don't always do it. I don't. And then, But then when I don't wear a helmet, yeah, I feel like... There's part of me that's... There's a little voice in my head going, like, why aren't you wearing a helmet? This is really stupid, you know? It's a very strange thing, isn't it? You know, like, cause you're exactly right. I'm talking about mitigating risks. Yeah, I do something silly when I ride as well. Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? You're going to be horrifying a lot of people who basically are trying to increase avalanche safety awareness. Um, yes and no, because... <coughs> Excuse me? We did... So in the World Tour, we do um, a lot of avalanche training uh, camps. And last year, um, I can't remember, uh, but there were some really cool guys from France and Italy who had this, um, uh, who did this avalanche course with. Um, and the main thing is prevention. The worst thing that can happen is that you're stuck in an avalanche because then it's about survival and, you know, um, but it's what to do before that. You know, that's what, it's preventing it happening. And there's so many things people are not doing and how can you prevent it? And it is knowing where to go, knowing when to drop in, knowing if you drop in and something happens, how can you get out of it? And a lot of it can be prevented before it actually happens. I know that the avalanche I was in could have been prevented and most of them are. So um, once you're a passenger, to me, you've you failed because once once you're in there once you've fallen over you you failed because then you know anything can happen so um it's trying to not get to that stage and yeah not get to that stage so i know i've got different views to a lot of people uh, you're, you've always had so, those sash yeah that's why i wanted to ask you about it though because obviously i knew that I think the last time we probably talked about this was before, I mean, it would have been like 15, 20 years ago, you know, and a lot has happened since then. So I, I did want to see, see if I've changed my well, mind. Well, I just wanted to see what you thought now. What do you think? 
you've answered exactly as I thought you would, <laughs> which is that you wouldn't have changed your mind in the slightest. Wow. Time for a breather, eh? Believe it or not, Sash was only just getting going, really, but I thought that was probably a good point in which to take a break, if for nothing else, because there was a lot to take in during that part of the conversation, primarily two almost unbelievable stories of misadventure in the high mountains, and one with lasting and, as Sasha has eloquently explained, life-changing consequences. Personally, I also found Sasha's forthright and, uh, I would say, often bloody-minded views on dealing with risk and justifying certain decisions he's taken in the mountains to be as interesting as personally unsettling as ever. So thanks, Sasha. Thanks for being so open and, and honest. I thought it was a great listen and uh, fascinating to hear your thoughts on the whole thing. Still to come in part two of my interview with Sasha Ham. Sasha explains why he uh, opted out of snowboarding for about eight years because he decided to try and make it as a Formula One driver, as you do, and that's a good tale in itself. Then he goes into the Freeride World Tour years and what prompted him to head back into the top end of freeriding, all alongside yet another unbelievable story of the consequences that can come from high altitude, high risk snowboarding, which is really worth a listen as well. As ever, thanks for listening to and or downloading the podcast. I really do appreciate it and I hope you've been enjoying it. You can help me spread the word by leaving a review on iTunes, positive ones if possible. I mean, if you're not into it, that's fine, but you know, don't go on about it or anything. Um, if you do like it, you could share the thing on social media or you could utilize those vocal cords and just let a potentially interested neighbor or bystander know about it. If you know someone that's into action sports, pass the word on. I'd appreciate it. Until the next time, thanks for listening.